electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Thanks, Sarah. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Melissa Lee. And today for Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, what is at stake for your money as the Fed kicks off a critical two-day meeting? Plus, the Investment Committee making some big moves in the financials as the bank crisis continues to unfold. Joining us this hour to discuss Stephanie Link, Josh Brown, and Jim Labenthal also with us senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. We want to get a check in the markets here. As Don and Sarah pointed out, we're building on yesterday's gains in today's session. We've got the Dow up by about a half a percent. Ditto for the S&P 500. And the Nasdaq is up by seven-tenths of a percent. So we're seeing a little bit of a continuation of that strength in technology. Also worth noting the rally that we're seeing in regional bank stocks today, as well as in small caps in mid-cap stocks. How are we positioning ahead of the Fed, Steph? How are we positioning? Um, It's really challenging at this point, right? Because usually the Fed does not like to have uncertainty going into a a meeting and a a decision. And we have it in spades because we just don't know what's going to happen with the banks. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about my moves in a little bit. So um, we can go there if you want. But I think at least for tomorrow, I think you rule out 50, right? And probably not a pause. I think that would be too dramatic of a change for the Fed. Uh-huh. And I think, so I think they go 25. And I, and I think they're not done because the economy is actually gaining momentum. The GDP is now running about three, three and a half percent. And core retail sales were better. Housing data is getting better today. Great number, right? Much, much improved to 14% existing home number. Initial claims remains really strong. So to me, that's, the, that's, that's good. That mm-hmm. It's great that the economy is not falling apart. But at the same time, inflation is still quite high at 5.5% headline. So I think they will go 25 tomorrow. And I think we have more to come, not a lot more, but more to come. And then we have to kind of just reassess and see where there are opportunities. And like I said, I have a lot of I saw a lot of opportunities in the past week. It would have been a lot easier had the data slowed down a bit. It would have given the Fed a little bit more more cover. We we know that lending standards are, in fact, tightening. They are going to continue to tighten, Jim. Um, So so what do you think the Fed's playbook will be? And, you know, so here's 25 with a pause. A no yeah. hike with the hawkish tilt. I mean, there are all sorts of scenarios. That we this can is be one of those about. cases, Mel, where um, you know what I think they're going to do is drastically different from what I think they should do. Uh, I think they're going to raise 25 basis points, and I think they'll, you know, the arguments will be at least behind the scenes that the markets are giving them cover. Look at what's happening today to do so, and there will be this discussion of if they don't raise 25 basis points, that they'll somehow lose credibility. I think those are false arguments. I think that uh, they really should not raise 25 basis points for a number of reasons. They should pause right now. And reason number one, inflation is coming down. I can hear Steve's engine whirring up right now. Yeah, but it's not coming down fast enough. Um, maybe that's true, but after the events of last week, uh, it's definitely going to be coming down faster than the reported results from the CPI, PPI of February. The other thing is, look, the banking system is in peril right now. This is just not the time to raise rates. You run the risk of breaking something more than it's already broken. And if they raise those 25 
25 basis points. I think there's a reasonable chance that within two to three months they'll be taking that uh, 25 basis points back off, uh, which a- makes me ask the question, why bother? I mean, it's it's so it's so counterproductive that I really wish they wouldn't, but I think the markets are going to give them cover, and they will. I think they pause. And Good. Mm. I, I know. Like, like you think that they should pause and that they actually will pause. I think I think in both cases okay. that's true. Yes, I, I think they should pause, and I think they will, and I think that's how you reclaim your credibility. And it'll be off to the races now. Good. I hope not, because we're, we, we have big problems, and that's the reason why they should pause. So a, a rally to 4,100 in the S&P 500, I suppose, is possible. Anything beyond that, I'm really going to scratch my head and say, why? Because we are now looking at a situation where you've got, for the first time in 15 years, genuine concern all over the world about some very important financial institutions. We're having pretty much a rescue every three days at this pace. I made a very bad call in January. I said one thing we know for sure, interest rate volatility is probably going to die down versus 2022. Wow. I could not have been more wrong. What we're seeing in the two-year, and this is from Bespoke, I thought it was interesting, we're on a six-day streak of 30-plus basis point intraday moves in the two-year Treasury. That's longer than the five-day streak we had in the immediate aftermath of the Lehman bankruptcy. This is not how the two-year should trade. And so I think the Fed's going to look at that. And yes, the market's up today. They have cover, blah, blah, blah. 87% of, of, of uh, there's an 87% probability of a hike in uh, priced into the market right now. Okay, that probably tells them we could do it if we want. But if you're really concerned about stability, which is your mandate, and you really want your credibility, you cannot simultaneously be rescuing the 15th largest bank and raising interest rates. The two things do not make sense to be taking place inside of the same seven days. Do you think the terminal rate going from 6% last week to 4% this week is is reflecting kind of what you're saying, that the Fed should pause I'm so and glad stop. you asked. Stephanie, if you look at 1998, we had a disruptive, exogenous event in the markets. Long-term capital management blew up, multiple currency crises in Russia and Asia. And the decision was made, not that we're done hiking for the cycle, but let's pull our foot off the brake for a second and just reassess. And they actually did three rate cuts. Uh, believe it or not, that summer into fall, by 99, they were hiking again. We were back, we were back, the terminal yeah. rate. So in, in 87, they, they, they took a breather. They were in the midst of a hiking cycle. That's part of what caused the crash of 87. They stopped, looked around, cut rates, and then they were back to hiking. So it's it would be ahistorical to say that the Fed will throw its credibility out the window by reacting to what is clearly a financial okay. crisis brewing. This seems like the perfect opening to bring in Steve Leisman. Steve, we all lived through the financial crisis. You're a reporter on the ground back then. Um, what do you think of, of this conversation that we're having in terms of what the Fed can do and, and how the credibility factor plays in? I think if you let it go a little longer, fisticuffs might erupt, Melissa. I was sort of hoping you would and to hoping. see what happened between... <laughs> you. You know, Josh and Jim and Stephanie, what smart we people with other, great ideas. And I, We're a family <laughs> here. <laughs> Lord, 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 you can see that it's true. But here's the thing. I mean, I think this conversation is not dissimilar to the one that's going on around the table right now. And I think there are very good arguments. Josh is of this mind, uh, which is, I think, separate from what the, the, the Fed would like to be true. 
which is that financial stability and monetary policy are kind of one and the same, that there's no differential between the two. Lagarde tried to show us this past Thursday that that was not the case, that she could hike by 50 points, get rid of guidance, and then go ahead and, and, and hike, hike 50 and then deal with the financial stability problem, essentially, through the central banks and, and the merger of UBS and Credit Suisse. That's how it turned out. Powell would also like that to be true, and I'm sort of siding with Josh that that is not going to be the case. And unlike what Jim thought I was going to say, I do think there's a downdraft coming from tightened financial conditions. And I'll tell you that the senior loan officer survey is now one of the most important pieces of data that we're going to be seeing when it does come out, which is to see what's happening to tightening standards. So my guess is because of that 80 percent probability here that Powell takes it because it's being given to him by the market. And if you go from the supposition here that um, the market has priced in, the stock market has priced in what the bond market is expecting, then I think that the power will say, okay, at this rate, I'm not going to have a big impact on the bond market or on the, on, the, on the equity market or on the bond market by hiking that quarter. But I do think what will be significant is he's going to, put doubt into future guidance here. And what he'll emphasize tomorrow, I think, is, is the uncertainty bands around the Fed's own projections. And I think what will happen is that band of uncertainty will widen quite a bit. They have to come up with a number about future rates, but they'll say, okay, here's the number, but please understand, we have these uncertainty bands around it, and they're very wide, and we're not really sure what comes next. And that will back off the certainty that's baked into the market or had been baked into the market about future hikes. Steve, is there a chance that they would do something like a 10 basis points? Like, why would they be married to 25? I don't think they'll do 10. I mean, people have always asked me that question. I, and, and there's no particular reason why do 25 rather than 10. I think they'll keep it in the 25, 0, 25, 50, and 75. So they'll keep to those quarters. That's the way they think about things. That's the way they're projections are kind of set up. They, they, could, they could do 10. I'm not sure you get anything more or less from doing 10. I mean, I think what would happen is we'd all be scratching our heads about what 10 means versus 25. Hey, hey Steve, I'm glad you brought up Lagarde and, uh, and the European approach. I think it bears repeating that in 2008, 2009, uh, they similarly thought that they can continue to fight inflation that didn't exist at the time um, and and keep the banking crisis that was brewing there as like a separate thing to be dealt with with different tools. And that proved yeah. to be one of the most fatal mistakes in the history of central banking. Not only did they have to roll all of that back, it put off their recovery probably by a year to 18 months relative to the recovery that we had already underway because we went all in on zero rate and, and QE while they were still hiking. So are, is history repeating itself? Are they doing the same point, thing? Doug. And I understand the Germans are paranoid about inflation. I get all of that, but they already did this experiment. But it doesn't work. Josh, I, I, I would just offer that I think there's a couple differences, which is what, what I'm worried about tomorrow is that Powell wants to make a point with his policy, right? And, and the point is that financial stability is here and monetary policy is over there. And I'm not sure you want to run that experiment at this time, you know, oh, or right. test that theory right now. So I would say, you know, I think Trache back in 08 was trying to make a point about the idea of, of lowering rates not being good for the economy. 
And I think Paulson in 08 was trying to make a point about moral hazard when he let Lehman go down without government assistance. So I always worry when you're trying to make a point. So I think that I don't think Lagarde was trying to make a point. I think Lagarde was in a place where what I thought you were going to say was Europe has a higher inflation rate, not coming down as fast as the United States, and it's further behind the Fed. Um, it, it, it's, it's behind the Fed in terms of where its rate policy is. So I think she did that 50. Again, I think the market was giving it to her. She took it, and it worked out okay for her. But remember, she got rid of the guidance, and that was the key to it. Steve, what sorts of key language changes are you going to be looking for? I mean, does he finally say soft landing is completely off the table? He's always asked that question. He always says there's room for one. I wonder if at this point he's willing to come out and say, you know what? No, <laughs> we just don't know. Well, I, I think I think the word uh, I have the word uncertainty in my bingo card. Uh, that'll be a big one. Um, he I had bumpy last time when it came to inflation. I got I won that one as well. Um, I think that'll be a big part of what he says. He'll talk about uh, financial conditions tightening or the possibility of it. I think he'll talk about confidence in the banking market, I think, or the banking industry. I think that'll be a, 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 a big number. Uh, if you want a good, a good phrase for your bingo card, you want to have mm -hmm. the word well capitalized, because I think he's going to use that 50 times tomorrow. So he's going to talk about the banking system being well capitalized. He's going to talk about the efforts that the Fed has put in place uh, to try to uh, make sure that the banks have sufficient liquidity, both to change the discount window and the new bank lending fund. He'll talk about those. Um, and he'll talk about, I, I'm interested to see how he's going to talk about this idea of implicit deposit insurance, which I've been right. reporting all day. And, and it doesn't seem like that story that's so uh, got the market's attention is something that's going to be easy for the administration or the regulators to do because uh, a blanket deposit insurance is going to require congressional approval. Yeah. Uh, Steve, thanks. Steve, for the tip. Uh, thanks for the tips on the bingo cards. I really want to win uh, this time. Yeah. Steve Leafsman. I, I know it's not it's not. A, I know I know it's not a game of bingo, but you might as well have a little fun while you're at it. I mean, it's a couple hours press conference. You might as well. Uh, good to see you, Steve. See you later. Hey, hey Mel, to yeah. Steve's point about sending a message, this is really important. Can we put a chart up of GLD or, or gold? Either either way, I'm happy. Um, gold is in the 1900s, basically. And we have not seen it at these levels. Really, you have to go back to 2011. If you look at gold in any other currency, the euro, the yen, it is already at new highs. Gold will be at new highs, I believe, in USD, like imminently. I think it could be in the mid-2000s. Hmm. And the reason that's significant is that kind of momentum coming into gold does not happen absent serious allocation of money into precious metals, fear about conventional banks, fear about, is my money safe? Is it safe in this currency? Is it safe in this situation? Um, and I think that that's the kind of message that, you know, rather than the Fed always sending messages, maybe it should be listening to messages from time to time. Well, that's a great point. It's that, plus, and also Bitcoin. Well, it's uh, the same uh, thing listen, with the Bitcoin that's a, chart. That's a great point. Maybe the Fed should yeah. be listening. And there, there are a bunch of messages fire out there. I'll the give blue, you a, like, fire I'll up the terminal and take, and take, a, <laughs> take a look 
what's going on out there. But I'll give you another message, and whether the stock market's right or wrong, there is something that's clear to me as I look at my portfolio today, which is that the most indebted companies in my portfolio are rallying, and not just by a little bit. I mean, they are rallying hard. You can take a look at Paramount. It's up almost 6% today. You look at GM, up about 5%. Uh, I mean, obviously, the financials are doing what they're doing, and these are stocks that, in general, are going to benefit from lower interest rates, or at least interest rates that are not going up as high. I mean, that is just a, you know, you look at you look at your portfolio, it's telling me that today. Now, is that right? Will the Fed listen to it? Does it matter? I don't know, but the Fed, the stock Will market the is screaming. Will the Fed listen to that, that in that it does not want that to happen? You that, know, that I'm going to go back to for these I'm, companies I'm gonna, that have heavy debt. It should cost them Melissa, more money. Melissa, if, if I may, I know I took a risk in predicting what Steve was going to say earlier, but I, I do think he would be consistent on this if he's still listening, that he is adamant that the Fed doesn't really care what the stock market does. Now, maybe that's true, maybe it's not. That's Steve's opinion. I hope they don't. I hope they at least are looking for signals from it, but I hope that they are not going out there and saying, oh, we got to go crash the market because it's going up today, because that's just a wrong-headed way of approaching monetary policy. Guys, they're just focusing on inflation at this point. And the banks, I'm sure, right? And so, I mean, you have core services inflation, ex-housing, up 7.6% year over year, came in 0.9% month over month, which was the highest since April 22. So that's not going in their favor. And so as a result, I know it's going to be challenging for them to come out and and express what they want to really want to do um, in terms of, yeah, the economy is, is, is sort of rolling over and that sort of thing. But inflation is not rolling over, you know, and it's just something that they're really focused on. They have the dual mandate. They have the go ahead because initial claims continue to be so incredibly strong. So, I, I, you know, it would be great if they looked at the market, but they haven't looked at the market for the last three years. Steffi, I mean, the transitory inflation. Core services, housing is not, well, I understand it's what, what they're they, focused on, know, but that's not inflation. But that's what they're exactly. focusing on, you But guys. let me, may, may I, today. May, may, today. wait, yes, wait Steph, your, your point is well made. That is what they're focused on. I think what Josh is saying, I'm not going to talk for Josh, but I'll talk for myself. They shouldn't be focused on that. They should be focused on CPI headline. And I'll tell you why. They can do all this granular look. They can just take this and say, look, we're only going to focus on shelter inflation. They can do all of that they want. Elizabeth Warren is sending one heck of a shot across the bows of the Fed's independence right now. They are marching down a path where if they start killing this economy, killing jobs, and CPI headline is coming down the way it is, they're going to be put in political peril. I'm I'm sorry to throw this into the conversation conversation because it's not in the backward looking data that the Fed has chosen to obsess over. But the simple fact is that two thirds of all CNI loans are coming from small and mid-sized banks. How many of those loans do you think are going to be made if the banking system continues down the path that it's on? Very few. Now, you've got a wall of maturities coming at you as well. Commercial real estate, a big chunk of that is, is big city office building. It's not going to be good almost regardless of what the Fed says or does. We've got these realities that don't yet appear in the data because you're not from nine or 12 months ago. But I am telling you, if I'm the Fed, I drop this data dependent nonsense and start thinking using common sense. You're all rational beings, very smart and intelligent. I'm barely rational at this point. I'm really talking about Steph and Jim. (laughs) But anyway, um, you, you speak a lot of, you know, things that make sense. Yes, yes, yes. But the fact of the matter is if the Fed says... 25 tomorrow and is dovish and says we're going to pause, the markets will probably rally. The markets will probably take it well. Yeah. So you can tell me that there's all these loans coming due, that the banking sector's in a, you know, 
shambles. They're going to take but it's gonna, off, Melissa. Yeah, what's the point? They're going to take it off in to, two months. To, to do what? So this, so this summer, so this summer, when we have problems in CMBS, when we have problems in community banks all over the country, when they're debating the, the <laughs> debt ceiling, when they're debating whether or not the, the FDIC is now unlimited, political debates, when we have all of that going on, you give back the 25 bips. What'd you do it for? Exactly. I, what are we doing exactly. here? Because they've been consistent the on the inflation stability or, front. or no? I, look, I, I'm agreeing with you guys, but I'm just saying that this is not a Fed that's listening to any of the things that we're saying. So that's one thing. You're right, and that's problematic. All right. And it is problematic. Let's let's talk about the banks, because Jim is in and out of a trade, which didn't do you too well, Jim. Yeah, well, FRC. so just to, just to remind people, I did two things last mm -hmm. week. I bought the KRE, okay, the regional bank index uh, for my clients, and personally, I stepped into First Republic. The reason I did that was two weekends ago when Silicon Valley Bank had gone under, I looked at the financial statements, and I said, this is a good bank, and it is. It was a good bank, but what's happened in the interval is that sentiment has taken over. That sentiment has taken the form of deposit outflows that are tremendous, $30 billion of deposits uninsured from the big banks did not stop that, did not stem the tide. And so I sold it uh, on Friday. I lost about 10%. You never like to see that in a week. Of course, it's much lower than that now. But, you know, sometimes you, you take a look and you logically make a trade that is overwhelmed by sentiment. That was the case here. Where I'm not backing off, though, is the regional bank index. Now, let's be clear. There are risks here. There are clearly risks here that the First Republic goes, that's just another domino. And you keep, you keep the dominoes flowing and all the deposits come out of community and regional banks into the big banks. I don't think that's what anybody wants or should want. Um, and I think there are ways to avoid that. And if it is avoided, then you've got a lot of regional banks that are selling below book value. That book value certainly has been put in peril by higher interest rates. But let's face it, interest rates have come off a little bit and that ameliorates some of that pressure. Down 10% in four days? What, um, sorry, what's down 10%? No, I'm, a, I'm asking, that was the trade? That's not bad yeah. at all. Yeah, exactly. Republic, so, yeah. Exactly, I mean, yeah, I can, I can live to fight another day. On social, on, social, <laughs> on social media, nobody ever has lost money in any trade they've ever done. <laughs> you are not allowed to lose even 10% in a trade, or right? I, I, mean, I, I mean, I'll, I'll take that all day long. The regional bank, I mean, that's interesting. Baird had when I say I'll take, note, I gotta yeah. be clear, I'll take that all day long. Take because that all day. Because it's, it's, right, exactly, overall, exactly. you could have lost your shirt in exactly. it, and you lost, like, I don't know. It was 10% or 50%, I took the A 10%. Um, Baird had an interesting note, if, if not now, then when, in terms of investing in regional banks, in terms of what they are pricing in? He says not that right they are racing, right, what they are pricing in right now is a permanent reduction in return on assets of 40 to 50%, which is ridiculous. But that's the tug of war. The tug of war here in the trade right. is you look at the income statement, it's going to be impacted by higher deposit costs, higher regulation. You look at the balance sheet and you say, wait, there's a lot of value here in book value. The large banks, though, have so much more excess liquidity, mm -hmm. excess capital, almost $400 billion, and they are taking market share. They're getting deposits hand over fist mm -hmm. from the regionals at this point in time. One of the reasons why I added to Bank of America last week, very rare to get that stock below one times book with a 3% dividend yield. And then a new position for me was Schwab. I haven't been in Schwab in, in a couple of years, but this is exactly the kind of investor that, I'm, that I want to be, that I am, that is blue chip quality on sale. And it it, we know why it's on 
on sale. But I think they're throwing out these quality companies, these excellent franchises, without really doing the homework. They could get $250 billion of excess liquidity from cash sources and, and, and also at the same time see something like a $90 billion drawdown in, it, in deposits, which is not forecasted, but those are the extremes on both sides. And so when I look at it, I say, you know what, this is a great quality company. They are not focused on venture capitalists, which is what we know SIV was. Um, so, uh, and so in my opinion, you know, this one was just an opportunity at 14 times earnings to add, you know, again, to all the quality banks that I have. I actually do think the three banks that failed, they weren't really well run. We know Credit Suisse was a problem child. Yeah, banks don't for 15, randomly fail. 15 years right. we've known Credit Suisse was a the problem, slow right? motion and, you know, implosion, basically. Yes, and, 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 you know, and, and Silicon Valley Bank and, and the VC exposure and then the mix on their bond book. I mean, it was, and not having a risk officer at the same time. For like six months. Come on. I mean, this is like... Okay. I mean, I get we're going to have some fallout from other banks. We, I hope we don't. But I don't think you're going to see these kinds of really special situations um, that kind of went bad. I'm with Stefan Schwab. It should almost, in my view, it should trade more like the money center banks, even though it's more of a broker than a bank. The thing that most people missed when they looked at Schwab, and they're not people that understand the difference between a bank and a brokerage, for example, yeah. a bank takes your money and literally invests it. That's what a bank does. Schwab takes your money, but you're investing your money. Those securities do not belong to Schwab. They can't use them. They can't trade with them. Your securities are your securities. So really what the issue was, was Schwab's own cash, its own capital. And the idea that that should trade in line with a signature bank <laughs> or, a, or a First Republic was absolutely outrageous. So I was in that stock. I think you're going to make money with it, even though I sold it. Traded it beautifully, by the way. Um, I, I, do, I think Schwab trades higher, and I think it's a beneficiary of the turmoil because if you're and they actually told us last week they took in deposits net yeah. so if you're actually worried about your money Schwab should not be the place you're running from it should be the place you're running from somewhere else toward in my personal view all right we got to take a break stay with us up next we're talking tech in our call of the day the mega cap stock one firm says could rally more than 25 percent from these levels halftime's back in two Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Brought to you by Eden Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eden Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at EdenVance.com slash CNBC. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing.
Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Welcome back to Halftime. Let's hit our call of the day. Meta upgraded to an overweight over at Morgan Stanley. The price targets to 250. That's more than 25% upside. And of course, after a scorching run in the stock already, the analysts saying that despite the huge rally from the November low, there's still value in Meta thanks to its focus on increased efficiency, improving revenue engagement, and reels trends. It's up 65% year to date. It's more than double since the October low, <laughs> but still 25% upside from here. Yeah, because I think a lot of people don't believe in the revenue story. They don't believe mm-hmm. that they can monetize reels and that advertising is going to come back, digital advertising is going to come back. It's, of course, going to come back. It's just a matter of time. The ROIs are just too important, and they have the best ROIs of all the FANG, quite frankly. So I think this is an interesting call because it was really focused on that revenue piece versus the efficiencies. We know it's the year of the efficiencies. We know they've lowered OPEX, CAPEX. And by the way, so they, they cut 11,000 jobs in November, and then now 9,000 last week. Before that, for the prior four quarters, they hired 90,000 people. So they still have a lot more that they can do on that front, and I bet that they will. And the stock's trading at 14 times. So I'm not going to buy more here, but mm-hmm. I do like it. Um, and I do think it does have upside. Yeah. Jim? So I'm, I'm a big disbeliever in, in uh, social networks. I mean, I just, I, I literally hate them. Steph, you and I have had some conversations <laughs> about this. Like you hate them. No, I really hate them. Uh-huh. I think it's just a venue for people to behave poorly, behave right, the that's, opposite. That's fine, but you can still make so, money so, on the stock. So I'm getting there. Thank you. Sorry, I should have <laughs> quickened it up. I think the stock is going higher from here. And there's a simple two reasons why. The valuation is incredibly cheap, and you're starting to see the earnings estimates go up. You put those two together, that's a powerful combination out to Steph. And, you know, I know this is, is a stock you're heavily in. Um, they've got to meet those expectations. And if they beat them, then it's off to the races. But if they come in short, I don't think they will because there's a lot of cost-cutting that they can do, uh, it should be off to the race. Are we just going to ignore the biggest catalyst of them all? What, the ban of TikTok? Literally, that's going on in Congress this week. The Thursday, C- the, the CEO. The CEO of TikTok. What do you mean I can't even CEO? imagine. I, I can't even imagine what that <laughs> Did job Did you see the video like. that he dropped on YouTube today? Yeah, it was great. Saying 150 million monthly active users is half of I know, America. I have two of them and living they, in my house. If they ban yeah, it, too. then TikTok will be taken away from all of you people. They won't, but well, we can, we can only, we can only no. hope and pray. <laughs> I, I don't think they'll ban it. I do think the reality is that this is headed toward a U.S. subsidiary or spinoff or some structure that lets everybody on both sides of the aisle act like they did something and the, the, the platform's here to stay. However, the worse it gets for them in the public rhetoric, I think the better it gets for the share prices of Snap and to a greater extent, uh, Meta. And those stocks are clearly benefiting from this oh, yeah. just overwhelming bipartisan negativity surrounding And TikTok. we talk about AI all the time. This is the reason why Reels is actually doing better. So that's really important. So this is an AI play too, but it doesn't really get talked about. That's one of the reasons why Reels is starting to get momentum. Have I'm, we seen I'm with Jim, by the way. Shut them all down, but okay. You really hate that? You <laughs> hate them. You're not on it Facebook. You're not like liking things left the, and right. What's the good part? 
I'm not on Facebook, so I can't. I, I'm there you go. Speaking me theoretically. And you. Me and you. Um, how much has a ban theoretically been priced in, though, to this huge run that we've seen in Meta? Yeah, I mean, a lot of you're up. Oh. It's up 120 yeah. percent from the November low, October lows. So yeah, there's a lot of good news being priced in. But I think again, they've gotten religion, Melissa, on the expense side, right? Mm-hmm. So and there's so much more that they can do. And he talked about year of efficiency. Well, how many times did he mention it on that call, on the earnings call? Like. 10 times, 15 times. So he's really focused on that at this point. The new CFO is as well. So good, a lot of good news is priced in, but I don't think at 14 times, right. it's really, really expensive. It's actually quite cheap. Right. Chart looks great too. Broke, mm-hmm. a, broke a very obvious downtrend. Volume started coming in as it broke above that. Exactly what you want to see. But it's not yet crazy overbought. RSI is still reasonable. I think the stock has room. Right. Straight ahead, a big retail buy. The one named Steph just added to her portfolio. Plus, we've got the setup on Nike ahead of earnings after the bell. Halftime, be right back. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back to Halftime. I'm Seema Modi. Here's your CNBC News update. After a second day of meetings in Moscow with Chinese leader Xi Jinping, Russian President Vladimir Putin says China's peace plan could be the basis for a settlement in Ukraine when the West is ready to consider it. He also warned Russia will respond if Britain goes through with plans to deliver armor-piercing ammunition with depleted uranium to Ukraine. Google is opening up its barred artificial intelligence search tool to limited public testing today as it tries to catch up to the enormous popularity of ChatGPT. Users in the UK and the US can join a waiting list for what Google calls an early experiment that will often offer a choice of different drafts of its response. And tomorrow is the deadline for would-be buyers of Manchester United to submit a revised bid. That's according to reports. So far, only two people have publicly expressed their interest in the Premier League soccer team, a Qatari banker, a British billionaire, but more than five bids are expected. The Glazer family, the team's current owner, is asking for more than $7 billion. Melissa? Seema, thanks. Seema Modi, let's get to some more investment committee moves. Uh, Steph just bought TJF. Yes, I did. They were at the Bank of America conference two weeks ago, and I thought they sounded really good. For the first time, they're going on offense versus defense. And so inventories, excess inventories in the industry, that's a good thing, actually, for TJ, because they're buying that stuff. So that's good. They have pricing power. That's good. They're taking market share. Margins are expected to actually improve about 140 basis points this year. And the reason is because freight costs have come down massively. So a 2 3% comp with better gross margins, I think the setup is quite nice. Stock's down 6% year to date. Not super cheap but a leader in the industry and in the category. Where do they take share from? I'm just curious because I remember in the Nordstrom report, Rack wasn't doing well, which seems like the most direct comparison. Yeah, for sure. It's the department stores in general, but it's all this inventory that they're getting from everywhere, right? And that's been the theme. Even though inventories last earnings season for the retailers actually improved, they're still quite elevated. And that's a good thing for, for TJ, buying all that stuff and, and, and really having the offerings and the pricing power as a result. Right. Where are you in consumer retail, Jim? 
You know, I, I'm a little light um, in terms of the traditional stores, um, but in, in some of the bigger purchases, things like GM, buy a car, things like Wynn Resorts, go have some fun, Alaska Airlines, Delta Airlines. So I'm with the consumer, I'm just not yet at the traditional retail spot, um, but I may be there soon. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, get to Nike here. Set to report earnings after the bell today. Let's get to Blue Line Capital's Bill Baruch with the setup. Bill, what are you watching? Hi. Uh, thanks, Melissa. The implied move of Nike, according to options, is about $9.60 or 7.7%. The put-call ratio is a shade under 1.0, and that tells us we have basically an uh, equal amount of puts being purchased as calls. And the the call uh, the puts first off uh, as for Friday's expiration are seeing the most activity uh, in, in the uh, 110 put strike is about eight percent of the put volume or 1,350 uh, contracts and then as for the calls we're seeing an equal distribution across uh, across the volume across uh, the, the deltas if you will and those 130 calls uh, for Friday's expiration are getting about eight and a half percent or 1,500 contracts and then you got in the money 120 calls receiving about six and a half percent of the volume or 1,200 contracts of, of the call volume and now Nike's four-day rally has touched the uh, closely watched 50 day moving average for the first time in a month and this helps explain some of the equal distribution across puts and calls all right Bill thanks Bill Baruch uh, Steph owns Nike which was mentioned in Foot Locker's presentation yesterday. A couple of times, The enhanced sure. relationship with Nike. <laughs> right. You know, the stock is up 30% from its October low, so it's had a nice rally. Um, the key for me is going to be, we just talked about it, inventories. They were up 43.3% last quarter, and in North America, up 54%. So if they can make progress there, I think that's a positive. China, China's starting to reopen. Last quarter, they did total revenues, constant currency of 6%. I think they can do much better than that, and I think as they reopen throughout this year, that will be a nice theme. Um, and gross margins, they're expected to be down 300 basis points because of this inventory that I just mentioned. Let's hope that they can do a little bit better than that. Um, but, you know, look, I mean, if this, this is the kind of stock, like if it were down 7%, I'd be buying it all day long because the China story has yet to really be reflected in, in evaluation. You know, this, this is a stock that obviously had a really terrible 2022, and then it turned around at the end, and it's yeah. clearly in recovery mode. So again, Steph, you know, much like Meta, if they just execute and have a decent quarter, I, I don't think you're going to get the same response as the last couple of quarters where it shot higher. Mm -hmm. But what you don't want to see is a miss that takes it back down and puts it in that category that it was in for most of last year. If it did go down like that, I, I might actually step in, and that might be my foray into retail. But I'm actually not hoping for that. I want this stock to do well. I want the markets to do well. <laughs> I want well. the stock to do well, too. Yeah. <laughs> All right, coming up, the NVIDIA rally shares of the chip giant up more than 70% this year. CEO Jensen Huang, just speaking at the company's annual conference, we've got the highlights, plus how the committee is positioned in the semi-space. Halftime's back right after this. Welcome back to the Half AI Front and Center at NVIDIA's annual conference today. Let's get to Christina Parts Nevelis live in San Francisco with more. Christina. It's really hard to find someone on Wall Street right now who is not bullish on NVIDIA given its contribution to generative AI. And today's AI conference, which is happening virtually, it continues to show how it's capitalizing on this trend while also becoming a cloud-centric service firm. So no longer just a semiconductor chip name. CEO Jensen Wang showcased a new platform for building and operating hyper-realistic virtual worlds. You're seeing just a snippet from the conference on your screen right now. And this shows how customers will use 
NVIDIA DGX supercomputers, that's what they're called, to train their own advanced models for generative AI. Jensen Wang saying, quote, we are announcing NVIDIA DGX cloud partnerships with Microsoft Azure, Google, and Oracle to bring these supercomputers to every company instantly from a browser. And he also went on to say that NVIDIA is going to be partnering with Medtronic, a healthcare tech provider, uh, to build an AI platform for software-defined medical devices. This is really important because these partnerships mean all of these companies and users will be able to access these supercomputers from just a regular web browser. There are, of course, a lot of other announcements, but the main ones, a new GPU and then a new lithography capabilities uh, that will help make an even more powerful two nanometer semiconductor. And it would be used by TSMC, ASML, Synopsys. And this is important because it further entrenches NVIDIA into the semiconductor manufacturing supply chain. And the stock right now is moving slightly higher after the keynote was given at 11 a.m. Eastern, but it's already run up, what, 76% year-to-date versus the uh, SOX uh, ETF that you're seeing on your screen, which is only up about 22%. Keep in mind, the company itself is on track for its best quarter since 2003. So the generative AI trend shows that NVIDIA is at the forefront and investors love it. All right, Christina, thanks. Christina Partsinevelis. By the way, NVIDIA CEO Jensen Huang will be on Mad Money tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Josh owns NVIDIA. Should we care about valuation when it comes to NVIDIA? Or do you say, you know what? AI is so big. AI is in the right spot. It's the picks and shovels of AI, so therefore you buy it. I'm in my eighth year as a shareholder in this name, and never once has it been a quote-unquote cheap stock on the basis of price-earnings ratio, Never, not even one time. Uh, so why is that? Well, sometimes there are things that investors are paying attention to beyond just how much net income can be pulled to the bottom line in any 12-month period. And this is one of those times, and I don't mean that to say who cares about the valuation pay anything. I think if you look at the potential revenue growth here, which ultimately becomes earnings, and you understand that 80% of the market for anything to do with AI runs through NVIDIA's GPUs and software platform, then you get why people are, quote unquote, overpaying for the stock. So yeah, it's expensive. It always has been. Actually, it's more expensive now than it has been for most of the time I've been a shareholder. But arguably, it's never been a more important company for what's coming next. And if you think ChatGPT4 is a big deal, because it could do your homework for you, wait till these programs start enabling us to cure cancer. The things that are coming in the next two, five, 10 years are gonna blow your mind. Is NVIDIA the only way to make money? Is it definitely the best play on, on AI forever? I would not say that. I would just say at the moment, it's become a must-own stock within tech and within growth. And you'll have volatility, you'll have drawdowns, but the buyers are going to keep showing up so long as they maintain the hegemony that they currently enjoy. If you think a recession is in the cards, can you be invested in such a cyclical area of the markets? Even if, if, you, you, even are, if you believe in AI question. and chat GPT and if blah, blah, accept, blah. If you, accept, uh-huh. if you accept that part of the deal with owning this stock um, has been 30 and 40% drawdowns on a regular basis. Not everybody is willing to make that deal with themselves. Right. You have to accept that this is absolutely going to have heart-wrenching moments. Steph, what do you think? Not, well, if you go into a recession, this stock and these stocks will be under pressure. There's no yeah. question about it. That's what's been so interesting because starting last summer, they actually started to outperform. They were the leaders. They were the leaders on the way down, and now the, they've been the leaders on the way up because of all 
this exciting end, end market technology and this, the newness, right? So I think you've got to pick your spots. That's why I'm not in, I'm not in NVIDIA. I've missed it. But I am in Broadcom. They do have AI exposure. I am in LAM research. Both of those stocks trade at 14, 15 times forward about estimates. Tech, though like NVIDIA, but a bigger story to tell about tech. It's the only sector that's green this year. I don't, I don't even think this is like, I'm sorry. I don't even think people understand. There's a reason. NVIDIA doesn't need to go to the bank and borrow money. Uh, Apple doesn't either. Right. Google doesn't either. There's a really big component to the strength in tech that has nothing to do with AI and has a lot to do with companies that have the wherewithal to survive if we have a financial crisis slash economic downturn. Well, that's why we've seen the Nasdaq up five percent. Let's get let's get Jim in on this. I'll make this really quick. You, okay, thanks for running the points. show. Hey, Josh. Josh, thanks for running the show. I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk off the set now because apparently no, you're like, hey, Steph, no. what do you think? Jim, Look, what do you this think? This is really We're simple. You made a great point. I'm gonna rephrase it. Maybe should tell you and your that we should go to break. What do you think? point you made. If you want return like Nvidia has given Josh, you've got to accept risk. And you can do it anywhere in your portfolio. I've got stocks in my portfolio that people take shots at, like Cleveland Cliffs is down or Paramount's down. The reward potential from those stocks is so great that you have to live with the volatility. There is no free lunch. May may I go to break, Josh? (laughs) Thank you. Up next, Mike Santoli joins us with his midday word. Welcome back to Halftime. Senior Markets commentator Mike Santoli is with us with his midday word. You're just making an interesting observation about the levels we're at right now. S&P 500 is, uh, in fact, in the morning highs was exactly where we closed the day before SVP uh, fell apart. So it was the the close on March 8th. So we kind of round trip. The market's making its bet that this is not something that's going to spill over. Every day you go that another name isn't pulled into the conversation. It's probably a positive. doesn't mean that there's no stakes tomorrow for the Fed, I think. Um, I think uh, I've been saying for a week they want the conditions under which they can hike by 25. They're getting those conditions. Um, To me, it's about what will calm bond volatility down, because that's the big outlier phenomenon in this market. It has been for a while. Uh, If you just look at the Treasury version of the VIX, it's just off the charts. Mm -hmm. So if they have some convincing words that they think they've done just about enough and maybe they can start to price out a lot more hikes or certainly they're not going to talk about cutting. But if it sort of gives the bond market a sense that we know where we're headed, it probably can, can do that job because, you know, corporate credit spreads have not really blown out. They're no. basically around the levels they were last July, last October. Guess where Fed funds rate were in July and October? Way lower than they are right now. And they kept hiking. Right. Mike, thank you. All right. Mike Santoli. All right, what's up next? Grade my trade. Send an email to askhalftime at cnbc.com or tweet us. We'll be right back. It is time for Grade My Trade, America's favorite segment on the Halftime Report. Uh, let's get to the one for Stephanie. Allen bought Wynn Resorts at 96 bucks January 10th. Should he buy or sell more now? Well, I give it an A. I own it, though, of course. I'm a little biased, but I, I do think that this is the year that they're going to see momentum from Macau, right? I mean, Macau is just barely opened, and it's up 55% year to date in GGR, gross gaming revenues. So I, I think that there's more there, and I think there's still solid momentum here in the States uh, from their Vegas and Boston properties as well. So I like it. I'd, I'd hold on to it. This one's for Jim. Bill purchased Paramount in November at 1613. He says he likes the dividend, but the stock has run up quite a bit. Should he hold or sell? Jim. 
Is this Bill or Steve Weiss? Because somehow Bill managed to <laughs> bottom tick the market in Paramount. Uh, well done, Bill. Um, all right, so look, it's up whatever. It's up 30% from here. You get an A minus. You get an A because it's up 30% in four months. You know I like the stock. To get the A minus to the A, to the A plus, you got to hang on to it from here. That's what I'm doing. You got to hang on to it, you said. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did that catch you by surprise? Do you disagree? Scott would. Scott would give me a hard time. <laughs> no, I don't disagree for no reason. Scott has like PTSD from Steve Weiss and Scott. Yeah. He's kind of, I'll protect you. <laughs> what are you I'm afraid God. of? I don't know. He's projecting I'm, now onto anyway. you. I'm just conditioned to fight back. <laughs> I don't know what goes on here. This is a safe space. Anyway, um, final trades are next on the Halftime Report. Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast now. Time flies on the half. Final trade time. Steph. Keurig, Dr. Pepper. It's actually a new position for me. Mid-single-digit earnings, revenues, and profit growth expected. Gross margin operating margins also, I think, will expand throughout the year, given pricing actions. Jim Leventhal. Alaska Airlines, the airlines in general have been hit with the news over the last couple of weeks, but their demand remains strong. They all gave reports last week at, at one of the investment conferences. I like Alaska as the best balance sheet in the business. Joshua Brown. O-N-O-N. I sold this stock at the bottom in October at 17. I'm looking at it close to 30. I knew it was going to work. I just didn't have the guts to hold on. All right, and that's that, a lesson. That does it for us here in halftime. See you uh, on Fast Money at 5. Meantime, don't go anywhere. The exchange begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.